0: Amen. Please be seated. You can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah. We are in the sections, the section uh, starting at chapter 13 going to chapter 23, a 10-chapter section that contain warnings or particular oracles to the nations that surround Israel in Isaiah's day. There are 13 uh, different targeted uh, nation groups or city nations. Don't think of these necessarily as large land masses, but they could be even city nations in these days that moved around a bit, expanded their territories. That's kind of the way it worked in those days and in this land. We are looking at verse fourteen or chapter 14, verses 24 through 27 to begin, but what I am attempting to do, rather than spend 10 or more weeks going through each of these oracles, I'm attempting to highlight the most common themes that come through these warnings to the nations. From them, we learn lessons that are timeless, they are repeated in Scripture, repeated in Isaiah, and in other parts of the Old and New Testament. So they are recurring themes. You'll recognize them. We'll come to them again in Isaiah. So I thought by just taking two weeks to do an overview of the ten chapters of oracles would be enough to give us a flavor of what God was speaking through the prophet, especially to the nations around Israel, as he's always concerned with the welfare of the world. It's not just about Israel, it's about what he is working in the world through the Messiah who will eventually come from the perspective of Isaiah the prophet. I put a map on your insert because these lands are foreign to us in their modern setting. Thinking back to 2,700 years ago would be difficult for most of us to remember back to school or maybe our Bibles have a map in them. But this is a simple map and it names most of the places that are named in the oracles. And you know uh, from your modern geography, uh, approximately because of the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, uh, where this is. Iraq would be where Assyria is, and Media to the east would be where Iran is today. And then, of course, you know where Jerusalem is, and you see Jerusalem. And at this time, Judah is all that is remaining of the promised land occupied by God's people. As the northern kingdom, where Tyre and Damascus are, they've been overrun by the Assyrians. This is modern-day Israel, as you can see. And Damascus today is in Syria. And you know where Egypt is as well, and and Africa, North Africa there. Ethiopia is just a little bit further down. So this is a a bit of an orientation for you so that as I mention some of the names, or you see some of the names, you know uh, where these places are, where they were. And it'll help us be clearer on the message of the prophet. You have Isaiah writing to God's people. He is giving them a message, calling them to repentance, asking them to consider how they have been wayward, how they have gone towards other gods, how they have allied with other places and now have lost their devotion to God. There's a remnant, a faithful remnant among the people of God who hear and respond and repent, but they're still recipients of that national justice that God brings. But the nations surrounding Israel have been waiting a long time to jump on Israel. They've been supernaturally protected, and now they were weak as it seemed as Assyria. Able to take all the way almost up to Jerusalem captive. Here as I read God's word, a section from the oracle that God gives to Babel or to Assyria concerning their future. Here they are at the height of their power, and God utters these words, hear it now, from Isaiah fourteen, twenty four through twenty seven, as we learn one of the many lessons from these oracles. The Lord of hosts has sworn. As I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Let's pray. Lord, we know that these warnings are specific to a particular people or nations in a certain time period, but at the same time we recognize the timeless teachings they contain as they are repeated, uh, not only in Isaiah, but in many other parts of your word. What we have before us, O Lord, contains valuable lessons. I pray that you'd help us to see these things. I pray that you would help us to see their particular application to your people today, your people here gathered to worship. Lord, we want to obey you. Lord, we do confess that conviction is difficult for us. It's uncomfortable. We don't like to admit Areas in which we may have compromised or fallen in, and maybe resemble in some fashion uh, what we see in your people of old. Give us humility. Help us to knowing the gospel is true, that you love us, we are your children. Help us to face truth and encourage us with truth. Empower us by your spirit that we might obey you and honor you, and that people would look upon your people and see a humbled people who rely on. On their God for salvation in Christ alone. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned last week and mentioned to you, uh, I already mentioned to you again, for centuries God supernaturally interceded in order to protect Israel from the attacks of the surrounding nations. Really, from the time He called Abraham, He started to do supernatural things to preserve Abraham and his progeny. And this is true all the way up until this moment when he is going to bring discipline upon the nation. It's a profound thing. I mean, for the longest time, the people, even in their rebellion, always had a sense of confidence that there's no way we could fall out out of national identity. We will always be a nation. I mean, God has promised us. And there was maybe a presumption about who they were as Israelites. Just being Israelites means we will stay in this land. But God brings discipline upon them. Now, his promises for the long term never cease. And learning about the whole nature of his promises comes with further revelation. That is, God's not thinking in terms of one nation as the end all. The nation is the beginning point to fulfill all his promises to Abraham, which would extend to all the tribes and all the tongues. And Israel's very ethnocentric at this point, very nationalistic about their understanding. In fact, they were all the way to the time of Jesus. You remember when they say Hosanna and the highest, they think Jesus is coming to finally take that throne back that was lost in the time period we're looking. But in reality, in reality, God's plan is much greater, much bigger. The true sons and daughters of Abraham are those who will trust in the Messiah. And that's even true in these days. All of Israel wasn't really Israel. The true Israel were those who trusted in the Messiah that God promised, and Isaiah depicts for us with such clarity. There are lessons for us, and we have begun to study them. Let's today look at a few passages that point to some other timeless truths that appear over and over again in this prophecy, as well as the whole of Scripture. And then try to make some connection from these lessons to our lives today. And I will warn you, that is always a bit uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me throughout the week because, as I think of my people, the people God's called me to shepherd along with the other elders— I know that God wants us to speak truth to each other from his word. And the reason why you have a a live preacher up here rather than listening to a much better preacher on tape or in video is because theoretically I know you, and you know me, and so we take the timeless word, which is always preached the same as far as its meaning, whatever era it's taught in, but its application becomes unique to each congregation. And so when we read about the oracles to the nations, what can we draw from this? I think there's a lot. Let's see it together. The very first point, a point that has already been made by the prophet, but is made over and over again in all 13 of these addresses to the different nations, is this reality. God is absolutely sovereign over the nations. And I know in Presbyterian churches, you're glad to hear that I said that, and we're happy with that, and we like sovereignty as a word. But when we really start to probe what sovereignty means, even Presbyterians get uncomfortable. Because it means, no, he really is in control and over everything. I mean everything. And he he has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. That starts to get a bit intrusive when you think about it. But it's absolutely true, and it becomes very comforting on many levels when we realize how true it is and how the Scripture declares it and how we are to live our lives in light of that sovereignty. Because that is the practical outflow. We'll live a certain way in light of it. Look at the passage and see the different recurring words that are used to depict this in the passage that I read to begin that 's on your insert it says in isaiah fourteen twenty four the Lord of hosts has sworn right there. the Lord of hosts is one of the highest designations for god it 's not just the God of Israel, which is true, but the Lord of hosts is a heavenly designation. The hosts are the heavenly hosts it 's the highest overarching Existing thing, and he's the Lord of that. And that thing is over us. The heavens are over us, and the heavenly hosts and the angelic realms are over us. And the Lord of hosts, he's a Lord over that. And that Lord of hosts, not just anybody, that Lord of hosts has sworn, he has committed, he has made a contractual uh, commitment to do something. He has sworn the following As I have planned. So shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is an amazing statement for the prophet to make, given what's happening. It's 700 BC. And we now have Assyria at the apex of their power and their, their regional dominion. And he's saying that I will break the Assyrians. Uh, he's saying at the same time that the Assyrians are conquering the Israelites and standing on their mountains, he's saying I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot. And his yoke will depart from them. His yoke was just being put upon them as he was writing, and he's saying it's going to be off them. And his burden from their shoulder. So it's planned. It's purposed. It's planned in the past. It's purposed in the past. So shall it be. So shall it stand. There's no negotiating. There's no thwarting it. There's no altering it. It's going to happen the way he's planned it, and that seems very unlikely. It's not a good bet when you see where Assyria was. Declaring the definite downfall of the nation that's invading and oppressing and conquering. It's an amazing thing, but it's true of God. In fact, we already know that God himself is using Assyria as a hammer for discipline. One commentator says wonderfully about God's sovereignty over the nation's Isaiah declares that high above the passing spectacle of human arrogance called history, God reigns in unchallenged sovereignty. The Assyrians think they're powerful, they're at the apex of their power, but in reality, God will bring them low. And this is true, God is absolutely sovereign over the nations, even the most powerful ones at a given time, because what they have in common nations in power, as they believe they belong there, they believe they can stay there, they believe to some degree they're self-sustaining and even everlasting a bit. But God is sovereign over the nations. Look at verse 26. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. Now he's referring to what is about to bring upon Assyria, but it's meant to declares something about all of God's power and sovereignty. This is the purpose I have purposed. To to do what? To free his people from the oppression of the Assyrians. To break the Assyrians. He'll always work on behalf of his people. Now, in the Old Testament, his people are contained in a nation. His people today are those who are united to Christ by faith. And churches represent his people. He'll always advocate for his people. He works the sovereign plan out for his people. Nations may even rise against his people, and they'll have times of victory or domination, but overall, God, as we have seen before, will maintain his remnant. These points relate to what we have already seen in our prior lessons, but here in this 14th chapter of Isaiah, there is a clear depiction of his utter sovereignty. This is the purpose that is purpose concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. What is the hand stretched out over the nations? God's purpose. He stretches out His hands, and His hands are too strong to push back. His hands do what He wants to do. This is the purpose that is purpose concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts... Has purposed, and who will annul it? Rhetorical. Nobody. Who could? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Nobody. He's absolutely sovereign. He has a purpose for this world, and it will come to pass. He has a purpose for the nations, and it will come to pass. He has a purpose for his church in the world, and it will happen. He has a purpose for your life. It comes down to the individual. He's a purpose for your life, and it will not fail. Imagine this: here in this is an Assyrian. I mean, Assyria would be in power uh, for fifty to seventy-five more years after this. They thought they'd be in power. They thought they're the most powerful. In fact, you could imagine the kinds of the kind of arrogance that would overtake these different empires. In fact, the, the most common mistake made by kingdoms and kings and nations is to believe, uh, because of their growing power and strength, that they're more in control than they really are. And it, when they become self-sufficient is when God breaks them down. When they think they're that powerful because of their own power, they got there on their own, or they're blessed because they should be blessed, or they've earned their own blessing. That's when God breaks them down. That's always how the cycle works. It happened with Assyria. Assyria rose and then they were broken by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians thought they were the greatest empire ever because they took Assyria and expanded. Uh, But they were broken by God and we'll see its prediction here as well. Something that happens 75 years in the future. Isaiah predicts their rise and their fall. But after the Babylonians who thought they were everlasting, then the Persians and the Medes, they came in and took over Babylon, and after the Medes and the Persians came the Greeks, and then after the Greeks the Romans, and you get the picture. They all think the same thing, and with arrogance, God brings them low, and he shows his utter sovereignty over the nations. I mean, you could imagine. You can imagine a ruler in this state of euphoric power, maybe, or misled conception about real power. You could hear the Assyrian emperor saying, Assyria is the most powerful nation on earth, period. It's not even close. You could imagine the emperor of Babylon with full pride in what it had become. Apart from God, Babylonian troops are the finest fighting force in the history of the world. You can imagine the Medes and the Persians and they'd have some reason to say, no nation." would dare to attack our nation or our allies because they know that that's the path to ruin. You can imagine them saying it. You can imagine people saying this, and you only had to listen to the State of the Union to hear it this week. An arrogance apart from humility before God always ends up the same way because God is sovereign over the nations absolutely, and it never changes no matter how powerful we think we are at any given time. The psalmist said the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Later in the same book of Psalms, but our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, for I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. You know, we see in this prophecy to Isaiah how he is sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over history itself. It's an amazing study just in Isaiah to look at how he forecasts Assyria's fall, Babylon's rise, and Babylon's fall. And these are all events that happened well after Isaiah's death. I mean, Isaiah only ministers for 40 to 50 years, 20 years before what we're reading here, 20 years after. So really by 680 B.C., he's gone, and then you have Assyria still in power, and then they decline, Babylon, Babylon rises and falls. And he depicts all this in very vivid detail. He controls history. I mean, God controls the events of history. Isaiah 21 is a picture of this control that he shows. And in the case of, this is an amazing thing, you have to appreciate that Babylon had not even risen to power, and he's, depic- he's talking about their fall on chapter 21. <clears throat> and Media, who you see on your map, they were a power, but they were just kind of percolating at that time. They weren't a real serious power. In fact, you might imagine the Arabians aligning with the Egyptians, or the Egyptians rising again as a power, because the Egyptians were simmering over there in the south as well. But Isaiah talks about the Media, the Medes, Eventually taking Babylon. And it's an amazing thing when he does so 170 years before they actually do. It's the God of history writing through his prophet. Listen to what Isaiah 21 says, knowing that he's talking about the demise, the sad demise of Babylon and the rise of the Medes. Remember, the Assyrians are who are in power. He's talking in the future. Isaiah 21 says, The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds and the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me, the traitor betrays and the the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O media. See on your map, by the way, media and Elam. He's talking about those two places. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O media. So God is commanding Elam and media to go take Babylon. You know, the Babylon that's not in power yet when Isaiah writes it. They see, Media, all the sighing she has caused I bring to an end. Therefore my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Arise, O princes oil the shield for thus the lord said to me go set a watchman let him announce what he sees when he sees riders horsemen and pairs riders on donkeys and notice this riders on camels they weren't riding camels in babylon they weren't riding camels in assyria at least not in mass they used them as beasts of burden not as war animals or animals that were used in mass and here he's predicting that this group that will come and take the babylonians Riders on camels, when the, you see riders on camels coming, you know it's trouble. Let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed. Whole nights, and behold, here comes riders, horsemen, and pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods, he has shattered to the ground. Oh, my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. God is sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over history. He directs it the way he wants it to be. To be sovereign is to possess supreme power and authority so that one is in complete control and can accomplish whatever he pleases. One of the great stories of scripture is in the book of Daniel during the time of Babylon's empire. Nebuchadnezzar, the second great leader, is forced by God, a Babylonian king, not a Jewish king, not one who has a scripture in his hands. A Babylonian king is brought to craziness to the point of eating grass and then when God brings him out of his stupor, at the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, it says in Daniel, lifted my eyes to heaven and reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is everlasting. That's when a ruler is talking right. That's when they're straight about who is actually sovereign. Why is this such an important theme throughout Isaiah and scripture? And even today, I think today, for most of the world, you are paying a severe price to gather to worship like we're gathering. It helps the persecuted believer to know God's sovereign over the nations and over history. And that you can endure whatever it is for that time because God is in control of it. We need that information in the worst of times as a church. And we need it as individuals. When there are things in your life that you don't understand, don't think they're accidental. It may bother you still, it may be painful. Why, God, is this happening? But yes, God has it happening. It's the God who loves you, has redeemed you, and He knows what He's doing. There may be no more overarching doctrine more important to the Christian life than knowledge of God as sovereign. The Lord of hosts has sworn, and as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. There are two other lessons I want to bring to your attention. They really work together. All of them do. I think you see how they overlap each other. You would imagine that or... Would figure that to be the case as these oracles go forth, but these final two just recur so often in the biblical text, especially as God addresses His people when He calls Abraham from the nations. Abraham was a pagan from Ur the Chaldees, and he comes out and he is he has revealed to him the God of the universe. And over time, God slowly but surely brings more revealing of Himself through His people through Scripture through the office of the prophet, so we know who he is. And he constantly, throughout it, is telling the people of God to stay true to the true and living God. Don't fall into alliance with the world's God or the enemies of God's thinking and philosophies and ideas. Beware of those ideas. Don't align yourself with them. And that's a constant teaching all the way, especially after the time of Moses. They come out of Egypt where they would have been immersed in Egyptian thought and philosophy which at that time was probably the highest version of thought there was in the world, from what we know. And they come out of this, so they have a certain amount of these trappings of what they learned in Egypt. Moses himself learned through the Egyptians. So God really makes a point of telling them to come out of the nations and be my people. And you'll look a certain way, I'm going to give you my law, you're going to study this, and you're going to mirror this, and keep focused on the salvation I provide and promising to provide and what I teach you. And that becomes an identifying feature of the people of God. Now, that doesn't change in any essential way as the church, now the people of God, all tribes and tongues we gather, we're still supposed to be distinct. We're still supposed to refrain from alliance with nations or philosophies or things that are outside of what God has revealed. Now, at the same time, he's placed us in the world to be salt, to be light, to reach out, to have an impact. So there's constantly attention about this. But we should see the recurring theme, telling believers don't align with the enemies of God. Align's a key word. Don't covenant with the enemies of God. It doesn't say don't talk to them, don't love them, don't care for them. It says don't align with, don't put yourself in a position to where you will be subservient to their philosophies or ideas or teachings. That's what he's concerned with. He's concerned that as we align with or put ourselves under or subjugate ourselves to, we will be placed in a spot where we might become distrusting of God. All sorts of ways we could discuss what that might look like. But let's consider how this was the pattern for the people of God that they kept falling into. That's what brings us to Isaiah 17 as an example. Isaiah 17 is the story of Damascus. Damascus was a city nation. In the north of Israel, they had encroached into Israeli territory before the Assyrians got there. And the Israelis, instead of propelling them out, expelling the Damascus, the, the people of Damascus, they instead made alliances and treaties with them and really became a very assimilated city. So when the Assyrians came upon them, you couldn't tell who the Jewish people were from the people, the Damascus folks. So it was just, it was just that difficult to tell because they had become friends with the mass. Just one of many pictures of how this happened. In fact, we see it happening throughout Old Testament history, don't we? It's constantly the thing that God brings discipline for is falling into alliance with other nations. Because it impacts them, it affects them. Isaiah 17 gives us a picture of how this worked, what it looked like. It says in Isaiah 17, an oracle concerning Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. God's going to Judge Damascus by bringing Assyria on them. So, if you're aligned with Damascus, you're going to get crushed as well. The cities of Aror are deserted. They will be for flocks which will lie down, and none will make them. And none will make them afraid. There'll just be nobody occupying this land that is now a metropolis. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim, and the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel. The Lord of hosts. And in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low. That's the Israelites. They're with the Damascus. And the fat of his flesh will grow lean, and it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain, and his arm harvests the ears. They, they've become so assimilated, they look just like them, and they are judged with them. That's the danger of these kinds of alliances. Israel's constantly being compelled not to align. In fact, most of these oracles. You know, the nations, you know, the, Philistine, the, the Philistines aren't going to listen to it and change. It's, it's a, it gives a statement of God's justice when he pronounces a judgment on Philistia. But the real thing, the real message is so the people of God know this is what's coming for the Philistines. Don't align yourself with them because they're under judgment. Don't align yourself with Moab or Cush or Edom because their fate is the same as what you have found yours to be because of your disobedience, but it'll be final for them. Don't align with them. It says in Isaiah 17 In that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants, and sow the vine branch of a stranger, Though you make them grow on the day that you plant them, and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. You've allied with these people who are haters of me, and then you will be judged with them. You know, this is not a, a unique theme in Scripture at all. I hope we see this. In the time of Moses, Moses says to the people of God, You shall not make a covenant with them, nor with their gods. It says in Exodus 34, take heed to yourself lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you go, lest it be for a snare in the middle of you. Because it'll draw them away from their proper devotion when they have the devotion of the people of those lands. Deuteronomy 7, and when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, you shall smite them and utterly destroy them. This is, of course, unique to this time period, but this is how severe it was for them. You shall make no covenant with them, It was that serious. Now, things have changed. Thankfully, in Christ, we have, as a church, a different calling on the whole, our mission. But insofar as how we are to be aligned or covenanted, it hasn't changed. God wants us to be true to him in what his word teaches about him. Joshua says, "...be you therefore very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, that you turn not aside, therefore, to the right or to the left." During the time of Judges, not a high point in the time of the people of God, the warning comes that you shall not make any league with the inhabitants of this land. Don't covenant with the people of this land. He means people who don't believe in him. You shall throw down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice, it says in Judges. Why have you done this? We know what happens in the cycle of Judges. God a cycle of judges. Judges have to be raised to free the people of God from the oppression that comes because they align with nations who hated God. But this is not only in the Old Testament. Paul writes to Christians in Second Corinthians. I love the way the old King James says it. Be you not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's in the old wedding liturgy that I used when I first started doing weddings. Be you, be ye, not unequally yoked together. We think of that in terms of marriage, and that's certainly true. We shouldn't marry an unbeliever. It makes no sense to covenant with someone who is, in essence, an enemy of God, no matter how nice they are. If they don't trust Jesus, uh, they are not aligned with God, and they're in a bad place, a terrible place. and need you to share Christ with them, not make a covenant of marriage with them. Ephesians 5, And have no fellowship with With the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. In Isaiah 31, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look on the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. This is coming in a few chapters where Egypt looks really attractive, and it makes sense because Egypt has pyramids, and they have architecture, and they have history, they have science, they have philosophy, they have religion, they have it all, and they are impressive. Maybe we should ally with them. And he says, don't. How do we apply this as people, the people of God? This is a very challenging issue. Because, you know, maybe you've come from fundamentalist-type backgrounds where it's a you know, there's these artificial walls built up about the things we won't do or do or we won't buy a box of cereal because the company might possibly have some unrighteous and, and we, we boycott everything and you kind of live life trying to be separate from everything. It doesn't work. And it's not what God's called Christians to be in the world. But as it relates to covenanting, though, with unbelievers, there are ways we have to be careful. Obviously, as you're preparing and thinking of marriage, that'd be one. Make sure you set out to marry someone who's a believer. But beyond that, there's a way, and it's uncomfortable, but it's true. I was thinking about the ways in which we enlist uh, unbelievers uh, to do what we're supposed to be doing as a church. So many ways in which this happens. As far as meeting the needs of the needy, how could it be that we should be doing more rather than relying upon uh, someone else, even a, a government to do it or another group? Those are obvious ways. But what about just in the most basic ways? I mean, we have a different world that we live in than even 10 years ago. Lots has changed in the last 10 years. And I think of just the things that have passed legally. Uh, You could say they don't impact the whole culture, but eventually they do. Because when something is made legal, then it has to be at some level, especially in a governmental level, promoted. And you can't escape the fact that our school systems, from kindergarten all the way up through college, I know it gets uncomfortable about this point, but this is the truth, um, They're all government entities that have to uphold and promote by nature uh, what the government says is legal. Now, thankfully, we still live in a relatively—we could still protest a bit by—we don't have to agree with it or believe it. But you know and I know in the last few years, you, in your opinion, has become less tolerated by the larger population. The consensus is no longer the consensus it used to be. That's the truth. And so it comes to pass that we have to have honest discussions about how are we covenanting together, say— If I decide, you know, that I'll have 9,000 hours between K through 8th with my child sitting in a situation where they are receiving some teaching. And it's not secular. remember when Sherry went to Wichita State doing her elementary ed degree. This is back in the 90s. I mean, ancient history. I remember her coming home with all these pamphlets from the NEA, telling her to enlist in the NEA. She needs to sign up now. She's like a sophomore, just a junior, and they already want her to sign up in their union. And everybody, all her classmates are signing up for it. This is Kansas I mean, we're, you know, I'm from New York. I'm thinking this is the, this is the heartland of, of all this wonderful conservative thinking. And she's in school, and, and they're teaching these things in the class. I thought, wow, secular education is what they told her we're, we're supposed to promote. Secular. That means without religion in it. But the more I'm reading what they're saying, the more religious I'm finding it to be. And that's 1995. It's a different world now than it was even in 1995 about what is being promoted. Because there's no way you could teach history No way you could teach uh, literature, you can't teach science secularly, because fundamentally you have to answer who is man, what's his problem, and what are we doing to fix it, or is there a problem? Maybe there's not, we should do nothing. There's still something being promoted there. And I think that it's time for us to be honest. If we're listening to the prophet, if he was speaking to us, where should we be spending our time and inculcating what kind of truth? And what should we be teaching? If it was really generic, if it really was nothing, then I'd say, let's keep going on. I think that's what we've thought for a long time. I know I thought that. I just don't think we can be honest, honest and say that's the case anymore. We can't say that there's truly a secular education out there, that it doesn't have a religious angle or a philosophical angle. Everybody has to make this judgment for themselves, depending, especially when they're thinking about their children. What can, how well are my children equipped to handle? And, and those are questions we have to answer, certainly. But let's not be naive about the reality that we could well be covenanting together with people who are enemies to God. And I don't mean individual teachers. I don't mean that at all. I mean the system. I mean the curriculum. If you take the curriculum, would you line it out and would you say it is absolutely secular, has no religious? Or would you read it and see it has a worldview? It's making a statement about it. Joel Bells, who's one of the chief editors at World Magazine, said very bluntly and bravely, I think, but it needs to be said. Uh, because people will say, you know, education's neutral. We'll just go there for this. The church will provide for us religion and Bible, and then we'll have school over here. The problem is we can't offset the hours. We can't undo 9,000 hours before eighth grade with an hour and a half on Sunday. There's no way the church can compete with that. And unless you're catechizing at home a couple hours a day, which I know is very difficult for anybody, how could you possibly keep up with the worldview propagation that you get? I don't see how, I'm yet to, I'm always waiting for someone to tell, show me how that can work. I never can find a way. He says education is never neutral. Most evangelical Christians continue to leave the primary task of teaching of their children to the secular state. Secularism is never as neutral as it sounds. It's a high-octane religion of its own. He's saying secularism, as it's cast today, is actually a religion of its own. It's imposed on Christians at their own expense. These high priests of ultimate American values, from kindergarten to the great graduate programs of the state universities, tell us what is politically correct. They tell us what to believe about our origins, what is wrong with the human condition, and how to make everything right again. Those are not merely educational concepts. They are the most profound of all religious issues, and they absolutely are. No denying you can't read a piece of literature without the person who's teaching it giving you a lens to see it through and determining which literature you read. And there's no person that ever wrote any literature that didn't have a worldview. There's no person who doesn't have a worldview. These are realities that have to be considered by every Christian, honestly, together with each other. And clearly, the church and families in the church, we do our best to help one another, teach a biblical worldview to our children, without question. We keep doing that. Whatever choice any of us make, that's what we need to do for each other. We just have to be honest, though, about what the stakes are and how difficult it will be. And the most common thing I hear from people when they say that they don't want to— utilize a Christian education, whether it be at home or at a school, is it costs too much, and it costs a lot. I don't know what to tell you about that. I just know, I'm not an accountant, but I realize that we're always short every year on what it costs to do the education we do at HCA, for instance, and yet we only pay teachers thirty to 35000 a year, so nobody's getting rich off of it. And uh, it's difficult, it's expensive, it costs. There are ways we could probably do better to lower it, and we should get together on this. But one thing I thought, and I'm a simple dude, I admit it, but when I look at our 150 families in our church, you all gave enough last year to give over what our budget was for a church. All the ministries that ran, you gave more last year than any, any in the history of our church, aside from big gifts given for the sanctuary at one time. You were faithful in giving immensely. But I thought if 150 families who gave that amount, over $1.2 million to make this ministry work, if 150 families gave $1,000 $1, more in 2016, that would be $150,000, and that would easily cover the financial need of the people who need extra help to send their kids to, say, HCA, another Christian school, or school at home. I mean, it's possible, and we should talk about it. If we didn't have a mortgage, it'd be another $150,000 a year. I mean, it's possible to provide Christian education for everybody in the church, even in a, in a, in a way that we can afford it. We shouldn't get uncomfortable about it. We should just be honest about it and talk about it. In as a pastor— I don't want to stand before Jesus and said I never warn the people of God about 9,000 hours in an enemy of God curriculum. I can't live with myself that way. I don't think I'm called to. I'd love to have individual talks, and I'm sure I'll have some. But remember, help me understand how to offset the 9,000 hours. Please tell me how to do that. Because we've got to get there. We have to be practical. How can we offset the 9,000 hours of what they're getting in curriculum that is it's actually, there. Are, I mean, my wife sat in those classes 20 years ago. I don't know what they're like now, but they told you that parents were generally going to be a problem when you were trying to educate your, your, your children. That's, that's what's taught as you come up in elementary ed. They're basically going to be, your biggest problem will be the parents. So for the Christian parent who thinks they're going to dive in and get and make a difference, good luck with that. At least in a real essential, other than be a room mother somewhere. You're not going to change the curriculum. I think these things speak to the final point that the Israelites were always tempted with and so will the people of God. That is to fall into this trap of thinking that we have to be along with the popular thinking is or the, the worldly wisdom of the day. And I mentioned that Egypt is that real, that popular, everybody wanted to be Egypt. They weren't the most powerful anymore, but they were kind of that wise old uncle who had been there before. And they're, just like I mentioned, their their architecture was so grand and their history was so amazing There was a certain trust that people had in what came from Egypt. Everything after Egypt tried to copy Egypt in some way. And this final point comes from an oracle that is levied against Egypt itself. I'll just read you a few verses from what is said concerning Egypt in the wisdom of the world. And I think it will help us recognize that we should not get caught up in what you know, what the Ivy League schools say or what this expert says or what the consensus of scientists now have found or we should be very careful about aligning ourselves with worldly wisdom without due diligence about what it's promoting. It says in this oracle to Jerusalem or to Egypt, an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt and the idols of Egypt will tremble at its presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians and they will fight each other and each will fight his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out and I will confound their counsel. So even the wisest of all nations with the best history, eventually their wisdom will run against itself and it will run out. Then he talks about the smart schools of Egypt. The princes of Zone are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Where then are you, wise men? Let them tell you that they may know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zon have become fools, and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of the tribes have made Egypt stagger. The wisdom of the world will ultimately fall. So even though it's popular in the day, and you may look unpopular if you don't go with it, at the end of the day, it's God's wisdom that promotes safety and well-being in God's glory. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord, it says in Proverbs. Colossians warns us, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Lots here for us to glean from these lessons, and time does not permit me to say more, although I want to. There are six points that I want to summarize. God opposes pride and arrogance, that comes through in all of these oracles. God judges, but always maintains a remnant, his people. We can be sure of that. That comes through. We see that God is irritated by oppression and a lack of compassion. So there's a promoting of compassion in all of these oracles, something lacking in these different locales. Also, God, he is absolutely sovereign over the nations. It gives us a certain peace and care. We see that we should not align ourselves with God's enemies, his enemies, don't covenant with, ever. It says worldly wisdom is futile in these various oracles. These nations may have been strong compared to Israel at that time, but Israel should not be fooled into thinking that their wisdom would be eternal or would last. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, it has never been easy for Christians, your people, to live in the world so much challenges us. And there's such a fabric even in the day and age that we live. We've been in such a blessed nation for so long, been able to function really, really freely as Christians. We've been able to practice what we believe, promote what we believe, uh, influence institutions, our government even, schools. We've been able to have so much inroad, and we thank you for this. And we pray, I pray for those who have such influence, teachers, families, students, but at the same time, I pray that you give us uh, clarity. And if anything I say is not according to your word, let everybody forget it. But Lord, I pray that if there is a truth that has been conveyed based on these observations, that you would give us wisdom as to how we might provide and proceed. We need your help. And it says in the book of James, anyone who lacks wisdom asks for it, so we ask for it, O God. You have commissioned us, on the one hand, to go forth and make disciples. And indeed, we are commanded to be salt and light. But on the other hand, you have called us to walk not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffer. Please, Lord, make our delight in your law and meditate on it day and night, and make us to be the very thing you have called us to be, this salt and this light, this voice. And I pray, God, that you would change us, and change the world we live in on the basis of your bringing redemption to bear. Whatever your will may be for us as a people, as a church, and even as a nation, I pray that you give your church a real strong sense of her identity, what we are called to be no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn together in our hymnals to 332. Let's stand. It's it's really a simple prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, Heavenly Dove, verse 1 and verse 2.